Television advertising shouldn't be hard. That's why Mountain's self-serve platform makes advertising on connected TV easy and effective for all brands, big and small. With access to premium streaming networks and technology optimized to drive performance, you have a new way to drive website visits, conversions, and every other metric that matters. Visit Mountain.com to learn more. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Chris Grasso. Chris is the CEO of Intersection, and they are leading the way forward in what I think is the most interesting genre of the media, just in terms of looking at its past state, current state, and future state, and that's the digitally, experientially driven reinvention of out of home. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about Intersection, Chris, and what you're doing there. That's a mouthful, digitally, experientially, to say that all right. Uh, but I want to start, Chris, by going back to your early days. And there were certain companies and professions that seemed to be really terrific at setting foundations for folks who then go on to achieve great things. And the company I'm talking about here is McKinsey where you started off way back when as an analyst and then later as a, as a principal. But can we go back to those early days about 25 years ago and get your reflections on McKinsey as an early training ground, if you will? Oh, for sure. So um, thanks for having me. Really exciting to be uh, on there and a huge fan of, of you and, and, and Adweek. Um, so, so really, uh, McKinsey is a terrific place to start one's career. And I had a very interesting ride at McKinsey because I was hired as an internet analyst. Back then, they called it the multimedia analyst. And I was uh, brought into uh, what they called the multimedia practice, which was the internet, the predecessor to the internet practice in the uh, mid to late 90s. Uh, and, and I ended up there because uh, during the interview process, I knew what Amazon.com was back in 1996. And that's how I ended up. Um, and inter at, at McKinsey, and they said, hey, Chris, uh, if you're going to uh, join us as an analyst, why don't you join us as an internet analyst or what they called multimedia analysts? And it was very controversial at the time, McKinsey, that whether or not McKinsey would have enough work in the internet space to uh, employ two, two business analysts, because uh, there was some you know, concern that this was not going to be a big thing there. Uh, but the firm was great, A lot met a lot of uh, terrific people over the years, had a lot of great mentors over the years, got to work on a lot of great projects over the years. And you see so many different businesses uh, and, and how they grow and how they evolve. But it also just uh, have, getting to work with some extraordinary, uh, extraordinary people, uh, that, that was a great, uh, great way to spend a few years. And, and doing it, uh, working on um, internet projects, which some projects were massively successful, some were less so. Uh, but the most notable one is I, I ran the first uh, model at McKinsey for Amazon.com to do evaluation. And we did the valuation of, of Amazon. We said, hey, the valuation, this was in the late 90s, actually makes sense if you believe Amazon is going to be 5% of like retail sales in 2015 or 2020. And we're like, yeah, it's possible. And my, my biggest regret was not buying Amazon stock at the time. Um, then I wouldn't be doing this. I'd just be living off the stock. But anyway, it was a great experience. And talk about what the internet and what the digital landscape looked like in 1997. 
a little bit different than it is today. Yes and no. One of the first projects I did is we went through the top 100 websites. And what was the great um, irony was you'd go through the top 100 websites in the late 90s, and it was all the big media brands always had strong web presence. So you, you saw CBS, you saw the New York Times, you saw several of these uh, big brands, and you saw some of the emerging brands, some of which were hugely successful like Amazon, some of which uh, were like GeoCities that, that like went up and went down. So it was an, an interesting um, interesting way to look at the, the landscape. And um, you know, a lot of those initial companies uh, did very well and were able to build good experiences. And then a lot of the traditional companies did a lot better than people expected. I think the New York Times, for instance, always was good on the internet, continued to be good on the internet, and is great on the internet today. And I'm not sure everyone in the mid-90s would have said the New York Times would have been arguably the best digital news outlet 25 years later. But you know what? They are. And they've done a great job on the product side and a great job on the content side. Well said. So we're going to talk a lot about intersection, but just jumping ahead for a second, your mission is about improving the experience in public spaces. And, and I love the roots of the company and the philosophy of the company. My take is that outdoor has navigated on the whole much better than some of the other genres of the media. Putting that McKinsey hat back on, um, reflecting on the pathways of the newspaper business on the whole, the Times, I agree with your assessment on the Times, um, the magazine industry. A lot of industries did not fare as well. What's your take on that? Who did well, who didn't? Outdoor, again, we're gonna dig into more deeply talking about intersection, but you have the benefit of experience and perspective. Yeah, and I, I worked um, in almost every other media and I ended up in outdoor um, because I think out of home has a huge amount of advantages um, over other media. Um, look, the, the people who were able to build really good brands uh, that had direct-to-consumer relationships and protected those direct-to-consumer relationships always ended up doing well. So you talk about newspapers. You know, the New York Times realized it had world-class content and was a subscription business that was uh, driven by having great news content. Um, and they were able to make that pivot because they had a good brand and a good product. Companies that had good distribution and had this endowment of distribution but really didn't have good content or good product really fell by the wayside. And I think the, the, the companies that were able to double down on great content, double down on great user experience, double down on great brands were able to come through. But there were a lot of companies that just had an advantage of distribution with mediocre product. And those are the ones that fell away because they were able to get disintermediated by the, by the big digital platforms like Facebook and, and, and Google and YouTube uh, and, and the like. So, you know, a lot of newspapers they just had this advantage of distribution in these cities and they could bundle classifieds and they could bundle retail advertising and a little bit of content that honestly probably wasn't that good. Um, and they fell by the wayside. Yeah. Um, but companies that had great content um, could uh, survive and, and, and do, do quite well. And I think that's what's, what's happened. That the, what the internet's done is it's killed anything that's mediocre. Stuff's either got to be really, really, really good that people will pay for and people will go out and seek out on the internet, or it's got to be really cheap. And there's really no middle ground. And, and I learned a lot of that at AOL where um, yeah, I managed AOL.com. And what you saw on the homepage is we could make any, because we had still had some legacy distribution. We had a big audience 
and we get people to click on almost anything. Um, so, and, and people would come to us directly. So AOL actually had a pretty long run even after the dial-up business where people would go to AOL.com to check their email and you'd be able to drive you know, traffic by having content that refreshed constantly. But if you didn't have that advantage in distribution, it was really hard unless you had a great product people were willing to pay for. Yeah, no, I think very well said. All right, we're going to dig in more here because we're going to talk about your tenure at Hearst also. So I want to dig into the, the, the fate of the magazine industry a little bit as well. But somewhere around 2006, you get plucked out of McKinsey and a pretty big job managing NBCU's digital innovation group. You're still a pretty young guy, 2006. That's an awfully big gig coming in at an SVP level at a mothership like that. Well, I came in at a VP level and I inherited a lot of assets that whenever you have the job innovation at a big company, you always end up asking, what exactly is that? But uh, it, it was it was fun. Effectively, what we had was um, I came in as a VP of strategy uh, working for George Klyovkov and Beth Comstock, who were great leaders in NBC. Uh, and we're building out the digital business, but we had a lot of disparate activities going on around the company. We said, let's pull everyone together and try to place some more uh, specific bets on on um, some internet innovation. And and we what we did was was really took a bunch of folks together and build out a um, effectively a digital studio to work with brands to build their own um, content for, for uh, that would distribute across NBC's platform. So we partnered with Procter & Gamble, we partnered with Hilton and several others, not to build ads, but really to build branded. It was early days branded entertainment and sponsored content that we built together with the, um, with the brands that then we distributed across um, our platforms as well as other people's platforms. And, and it was, um, it, it was a good, um, it was a good experience. I always wanted to work in media and uh, I got sick of, yeah, I love McKinsey, but couldn't deal with the travel and, you know, having a great opportunity at NBC to um, move over there and, and work with some, some great leaders in, in George and Beth was, was just too good an opportunity to pass up. And iVillage was part of that equation as well. So I worked with iVillage um, as well. Um, you know, we I helped uh, manage a big chunk of iVillage. iVillage, you know, there's iVillage proper. Then iVillage had these great little websites that were part of iVillage, which I managed, um, some of which are still around today. Great businesses like astrology.com, which did astrology, Garden Web, which had gardening and home improvement. But these highly targeted vertical websites that had really strong, tight audiences were, were great little businesses. Um, you know, at, at the NBC and NBC was part of G level was, you know, pretty small for them, but it was a great, they, they were great little businesses, all of them. Yeah. Let's talk about Beth a little bit, because she was such a terrific leader. And that team, I was friendly with Judy, who also was there for many years. And that whole GE NBC you leadership team was tremendous. I guess one of the great tragedies in American business is GE's fate, you know, over the 15 years that followed. But but Beth was a tremendous leader. Well, tr tremendous leader, really innovative, great person, great mentor. And I'll tell you, you think about one of the biggest bets was Hulu. And again, that was another one you talk about non-intuitive things, but NBC and Fox came together and, and, and George and some of the other folks uh, really drove that. But um, you know, that joint venture, no one thought that joint venture was going to be successful in 2006, other than the people involved directly in it. But looking back, they had great content. You had Saturday Night Live and The Simpsons, and you put that together and you had really good distribution deals. 
And then they hired a really great team to put that together. And you end up with Hulu, um, which again, you know, traditional companies can do well on the internet if they structure it properly and they use their assets well. And, you know, I think Hulu was a great bet that Beth and George and Jeff Zucker, as well as Peter Chernin and, and the folks at Fox did that, that bet played out really well. I mean, I think that that business has done tremendously well. Yeah. I, I think she was uh, always classy. She spoke at when we began in 2004, we had Beth on stage a few times and um, always you just, you were new in the presence of somebody who was just super accomplished and had a real humanity about her. Incredibly impressive leader. Another impressive thing um, she drove was, uh, you know, NBC launched one of the early venture capital funds with GE that that made some really good uh, investments. Then when Comcast happened, they subsumed the investments in Comcast. A lot of good deals out of that. Uh, they called it the Peacock Peacock Fund. It was a good. It was another good sort of play that uh, that she made. Great, great stuff. And then you get plucked to go to AOL uh, with a pretty broad remat, uh, the homepage, and a lot more than that. Uh, but talk about AOL because that was still a powerhouse at that time. Yeah, look, um, the AOL homepage, uh, AOL.com's at 13 million daily UVs um, and tremendous traffic. And one of the, and TechCrunch wrote about this. So we were doing, you know, Tim did a bunch of acquisitions and we bought um, TechCrunch. And I remember TechCrunch, we called TechCrunch up and said, uh, hey, we want to put you on the homepage. Can your servers handle it? And they're like, how much traffic AOL is going to send to TechCrunch? And um, we put a little link because we always wanted to test a little link because you still have this fire hose of traffic. And uh, TechCrunch guys all of a sudden calls like that was our second most um, viewed article of the uh, of the day. And it was just like a tiny link we put on the homepage because these homepages drove huge and still do drive huge amounts of uh, of traffic uh, and and the ability to drive um, you know program. And and I think one of the things Tim did is really push us to program. Uh, the page with good content. So, so we invest in some um, original content um, and, and we really, you know, as, as Tim was making these investments in things like HuffPost and um, TechCrunch and, and, and others were able to sort of surface that uh, to the, the uh, AOL audience. And uh, so the homepage benefited because it had a lot much better content. And then the, the sites benefited because we could drive a ton of traffic for them. And you also did some great stuff. Didn't you work with Gail and with Lloyd and their company to create some original stuff? Yeah, they were great partners. We did some really cool stuff with uh, with with Berman Braun over the years. Um, had a several. They 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 launched uh, several verticals with us. Uh, and yeah, again, very good partners, outstanding professionals. And uh, that that was what was what was great about uh, managing uh, the homepages. You know, when you and one of the things I really learned there is the importance of distribution. And, you know, we control distribution. When you control distribution, everyone wants to be your friend, uh, which, is a, which, is a key, which is a key thing. And uh, we were able to uh, do really good partnerships because we could tell people, look, we can, give you, we can give you a lot of traffic. We can give you a really big audience. And, and I think, you know, we, we underestimate the real power of things like Facebook and Google have and, and Apple is their control of distribution and their ability to... Um, uh, create winners based on who they promote uh, is is hugely underestimated, um, and uh, you know one of the other things we learned uh, at AOL, honestly, and one of the things that 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 was a challenge, but a great move by Google was Chrome, because when Google launched Chrome, it was a good product, but also it gave Google yet another way to uh, uh, manage you know 
influence distribution because when you go to Chrome, you don't go to a website, you put the search uh, in the search bar. Uh, when, when you type in your, when you type in the bar, you used to go to websites. Now you just literally just go to Google and, and Chrome was really a, a really smart distribution play on the part of Google. And really, if you look at what made Google take a huge step forward and advantage over everybody else, it was the launch of Chrome should not be underestimated. So you just opened up a good door to go through and dig a little deeper. And it's a little bit of a digression for us, but Google, Meta, Apple, tremendous control over what we see, what we read, what we watch. Government in our country, you watch these hearings whenever they drag some of the Silicon Valley executives to Washington, D.C., and you've got, you know, Chuck Grassley, who's, you know, sniffing 90, and he still thinks the internet is AOL dial-up, um, and a complete inability by our elected leaders, Democrats or Republicans, to really even understand the most fundamentals of the internet, and obviously huge lobbying operations in Washington to sort of keep it that way. Have we blown it and given too few companies too much power? I don't know. That, that's out of my, uh, my wheelhouse to give you an answer on that. I'll tell you one thing, though. The reason I went into out of home was I, I think it, it's, a, it's a place where you can still control your own, you know, manage your own destiny around distribution. And I think the, the power of intersection and what attracted me to intersection was the fact that we have distribution resources in most of the major cities in the United States. So we have the ability to get a message out and we have the ability to get content out to almost everyone in a New York City or Chicago or Philadelphia. And you think, you know, when you talk about why out of home has a lot of strength, the power of out of home is the power of distribution in, in these cities in a way that most other media, you know, unless you have direct to consumer relationships on an app or subscriptions, no longer have. The fact that we control our own distribution is a huge, huge advantage that the at-home industry has. Right, which goes back to something you said earlier about the importance of who controls distribution. Um, let's talk a little bit about your tenure at Hearst and building their VOD business. Um, two years, give or take, company, my take, that's really struggled um, with the evolution of the economy and the digital economy in particular, but you did have some pretty good successes there. Well, look, I think Hearst actually has done a tremendous job transforming itself, leaving aside the work I did, but rather if you look at Hearst as a portfolio and the investments they've made in B2B media and things like Fitch ratings and all outside of what I did, but you know, the ESPN investment, the in the investment, the Fitch ratings, all the B2B media, the healthcare information services, all the stuff you don't think of Hearst has boomed over the years it's, and, and they've done a good job with the TV stations too. Um, what I was doing was building VOD off the magazine brands. And I think we were just a bit too early, we were building a streaming service for online fitness uh, using the Cosmo brand, which was a good product, but probably a few years too early. If we had a online fitness service in 2020, that would have done quite well, but you know, timing, timing is a lot. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think I have a bias cause I'm a big fan of Joanna Coles. And mm -hmm. when uh, Troy got rid of her, I thought that was an awful move. And uh, I think that colors my judgment to some degree. And I didn't think I, you know, did not think Troy's tenure would be successful there. And I'm wrong a lot, but I was right about that one. Yeah, I didn't really overlap with with uh, when when Troy, Troy took over, so I can't really comment on that. I uh, 
but uh, you know, Joanna, I agree with you. Joanna's a tremendous leader. Yeah, no, very, wait. very technology forward. Yeah, great force in nature. All right, so let's talk about uh, intersection. And you've risen up the ladder there, uh, but I guess any conversation with intersection has to begin with a, a young man who you served as chief of staff to, and that's Dan Doktoroff. Yeah, Dan's a tremendous leader, um, you know, both in business and in government and someone I think a lot of us uh, have admired over the years. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I met him a few years earlier and and uh, reconnected with him when he started Intersection and uh, was very, um, you asked him if there was opportunity for someone like me. And Dan said, there's, a, you know, we're looking for uh, some folks over at this company we're starting an intersection we'd be interested so that's how i ended up here but you know there's a lot of people who have that same story with dan has always been a great mentor to a lot of folks yeah no just a super uh super guy in every every way so let's talk about uh some of the philosophical underpinnings of the company which are somewhat unique not every company in your space you know uses verbiage like everyone has a seat at the table here um a real commitment to ensure that all voices are heard, that seems to be really baked into the philosophy of intersection, along with all the technology, data, analytics, all that. But talk about that sort of philosophical, I'll call it human part of intersection. Right. So, so at heart, we are a business about cities. Uh, so we need to reflect the cities that we are we operate in, which are often some of the most diverse cities in, in, in the world. And I think we want to be very uh, inclusive to represent that. I think um, you know, as we build the business, we're focused on three big pillars. The first is bringing consumer amenities, whether it be Link NYC or bus shelters or other uh, great amenities to cities that, that we want to make cities better. It's a core part of our mission. And, and while we are a for-profit company, we also want to do good in the world. And I think that's what binds a lot of us uh, together. And a lot of that comes back to bringing great amenities to, to, to city centers. Um, the second area is really focused on content and programming. We are um, very committed to having great content on our on our screens, uh, great programming on our screens, great programming in public space, and it may not be, um, yeah, on digital screens. We before the pandemic, for instance, we had uh, gave away free ice cream in the Chicago Transit Authority. Is that's programming in public space, uh, and that that's really the second uh, pillar for us. And I think more than the other out-of-home companies, we're very focused on content. We have a lot of people who came out of the content world who worked in publishing, who see this as a new medium to be able to publish content. And we probably were the first out-of-home company to hire an editor to actually create content for our screens. Uh, and then the third area is data-driven advertising. We make our money through through ad sales, and it's really about putting data on our our, our um are being able to apply data to our screens, whether they be the digital screens or the static screens, understand who's seeing your ads and what they do afterwards. And experience driven out of home. Talk about that a little bit more. I assume that ties into, you know, what you do to try to make all your cities better places. Um, but I'd love to get your perspective on that, Chris. Yeah, we're focused on consumer experience. Uh, you know, we have a UX team. We really want to think about uh, making the public spaces better. So this isn't about throwing an ad on a billboard. This is much more about how do you um, engage consumers in the public space? How do you bring them amenities and services to the public space that could be content, that could be charge your phone, that could be a simple bus shelter, right? A bus shelter is hugely valuable to these, these, these cities. And um, you know, I think that amenity uh, allows us to build goodwill with, with the consumer. It drives a more engaged consumer and engaged audience. 
that is better for the advertiser as well. And advertisers can now get behind something that really supports the uh, the city. So it becomes a pretty virtuous cycle where we can um, you know use the amenity to acquire the audience, have this content and programming and experience, have a more engaged audience. You sell advertising, data-driven advertising. You do all that well. We can win uh, new contracts and build out the business. Uh, and that creates a lot of value for our shareholders. It creates a lot of value for the cities. It creates a lot of value for, for, for the citizens. And we really want to you know, have a double impact, both make the city better and make money. And my take outside looking in is Intersection's really grown tremendously. You've been there now, give or take six, seven years. Talk about that growth trajectory and where the company was when you started and where you are today. Yeah, look, we've, we've had a lot of good growth. Um, we, uh, pre-pandemic, were growing at a really good clip. Uh, pandemic happened, so, you know, obviously that was a, uh, we had a recover from that, but we're, you know, getting back to where we were pre-pandemic. And, and the growth's been probably in two areas. One is, you know, obviously revenue, but secondly is our growth in markets. So we've added um, Atlanta to our deal with MARTA, uh, Austin, Texas, Portland, Oregon, um, American Airlines uh, to our to our air business, uh, the path in New York City. Uh, we just added some some assets in Boston in the uh, Mar- um, uh, MBTA Street Furniture. We're, we're, we're deploying a digital network there. So I think um, you know we've expanded to a much more geographically uh, diverse business. Uh, it's probably the biggest thing, and, and that's done well for us. Uh, in the pandemic where we've seen the mix of the business change. So these other markets outside of some of the big traditional markets have recovered faster, just given the way the economy is. And then if you look at our product portfolio, uh, street furniture, which are things like bus shelters and link and things on the street are growing at a tremendous rate. And that's offset some of the, you know, the ads in on the Chicago or Philadelphia subways take a bit longer to come back given given the, the trends in consumer behavior. So we, we're much more diverse business now than we were say a few years ago and a much more digital business as well. You know, we, we much larger portion of our revenue is, is digital. And even the revenue that's not digital is um, digitally measured in the sense that we're able to understand who's seeing the ads and what they do afterwards, regardless whether it's a digital screen or a static screen. And looking ahead to the rest of 22, 23, 24, further growth, just more markets. What, what are we looking at in terms of the next couple of years? Yeah, so we're definitely looking at, um, we're always looking for new opportunities and new markets, both from um, products and you know new contracts that come up for bid. We bid these uh, contracts with cities or transit authorities and opportunities come up, private districts like Hudson Yards, and we're looking for more opportunities to work with real estate developers to put a digital signage and wayfinding network in like we do at have at Hudson Yards. That's an interesting growth area for us. Uh, the, the air business has come back and I think a lot more uh, street level, uh, whether it be uh, street furniture, like uh, the bus shelters or the links, obviously are going to be big growth areas. And then um, there's really been a renaissance in the, our bus business because uh, the buses you know, you can wrap the bus. It's a very cost-effective medium. It gets out to the whole city. So if people are home, the bus goes by or people are on the street. You know, if, if you're in New York City, then the residential neighborhoods, the foot traffic's actually higher than it was before the pandemic. So being able to get your ads out to the city. 
And it's a very cost-effective media. And now we can, we have a partnership with a company called Street Metrics. We can measure that media as well and give you a pretty good measurement on the types of people who see it and where the ads are. So we've seen a big renaissance in our, in our bus business, which has been great. So you know, it's the, uh, it's interesting because some of the most sophisticated, you know, the, the boom has actually come up both ends. It's the the classic bus business is doing extraordinarily well because it's really cost effective and we can measure it effectively. And then all the digital stuff at street level is booming because you can do all the fancy digital stuff. So it's uh, that th those two ends of the business are what's really driving us right now. Like Link NYC is doing extraordinarily well. And if you see the, the great ads running, a lot of programmatic running, a lot of very sophisticated um ad formats, takeovers, that kind of thing. I always wonder, because I'm so impressed by the link technology, you've got to spend a heck of a lot of money keeping all that stuff running and in tip-top shape, stuff that lives on the street in New York in particular, or Chicago, a cold weather climate. That's got to be a pretty big operation just to keep all this stuff going. We've got a great team and we've got great people out on the streets who do this, but it is a difference, you know, you learn, I spent all my career in digital media and then you get to this and you got to do all the digital, all the same stuff you have to do in digital. And then you have to worry about, um, you know, putting stuff in the street and cleaning snow and trenching electricity and pulling conduit and, and LTE. It's, there's a lot, there's a lot of complexity in running these businesses to your point. Um, but hard is good. I mean, that's one of our strategic advantages. There's only three or four companies in the United States that can run these types of street furniture or transit authority type programs. The, 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 it requires, you need to understand the media business really well and the ad sales world. You need to understand technology and digital technology really well, but then you have this whole physical presence, how to manage um, assets in physical space to your point. Uh, that's not easy. And you know, there's only a handful of companies that, that, that can do it well. And we are one of them. And Talking to you now, you seem as excited as I've seen anybody about their company and their business. Um, seems like things are going well and you expect them to continue to go well. Yeah, we're very bullish. Look, we, we had a, the, the, the pandemic was extremely challenging. Look, the pandemic was challenging for the country. The pandemic was challenging for everyone. The human toll was unbelievable. A lot of people had you know, harder times than us. But we, we faced a, a pretty deep challenge because what I always told all my friends in media is I never worried about audience because as long as there are people in Penn Station, we had audience. Like the great thing about our business was I never worried about a rating. I never worried about traffic. We always had the audience. The pandemic took the audience away and then redistributed the audience. So you had to adjust to an audience issue at the same time you had to adjust to an advertiser issue because many of our best advertising categories like Broadway theaters also were shut down as well. So, you know, we didn't have it as bad as say cruise lines, but you know, out of home, particularly our out of home, the pandemic was a very challenging um, time for us from a business perspective. And once you've gotten through that, obviously we're pretty, optimistic because we're optimistic about cities and we're optimistic about out of home and we're happy to be out of you know the world getting back to normal yeah no i think we all are and just to wrap chris you're also the leader of a company you've got a lot of people under your employ talk about sort of how you're handling uh return to the office um the challenges of running a company in sort of a quasi post-pandemic era sure we um we're a hybrid uh, we decided that, you know, we felt strongly about two things. Well, one thing we felt strongly of the world of everyone showing up five days a week, just that world 
not happening for most places. But on the flip side, we felt very strongly that people need to be in the office at least, you know, sometimes, couple, two, three days a week. And um, uh, we felt strongly about that for, for several reasons. One is all of our warehouse employees, they were all in the off. They were all at work like the whole way through because we had to keep this. You know, we had to keep. We had responsibilities. We had to keep our digital signage systems going. There were emergency messaging, uh, vaccine campaigns. A lot of, you know, what you know, the trains were still running. Like we we had to. So we had all of our warehouse people they did a tremendous job working. So, you know, thirty percent of our staff always was in these. So so one is you already got a lot of people already working every day in in, in person. But the second thing is we work in public space. It's really important that our people are in market, that they're in the streets, they see the product in action, that they're in the office. It doesn't have to be every day, but it has to be sometimes. And, and we felt strongly about that. We also felt strongly from a cultural perspective, having people together a couple of days a week uh, was important. And largely, most of our people agree. Like if you work at an intersection, you like cities. You know, you, you like being in cities, you like going to bars, you like going to museums, you like wandering around downtown, you, you don't, you like taking the train. I mean, that's who we are as a company. It's not like folks who, you know, want to stay in the suburbs and never come into the city, right. probably not going to be happy at a business like ours. Our people like cities because that's what we do. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's a great, great story. It's a great growth story. I'm glad we got to talk about people like Beth and Dan. Uh, great, great people. Tremendous and, mentors. Uh, I'm very, very lucky to have them both as mentors. Yeah. And I uh, thanks to Juliana for suggesting this. I think this was absolutely terrific. Uh, enjoyed it. And uh, a pleasure having you on the show. Matt, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed it as well. And uh, thank, thank you so much. Marketers need to know their ad spend is making an impact now more than ever. With Mountain's self-serve marketing software, Performance TV, you can track how your connected TV budget is performing down to the last decimal. It automatically optimizes campaigns thousands of times using real-time data to ensure every ad is served with your goal in mind. Visit mountain.com to learn more.